Good morning, City Light. Happy birthday, church family. We are two years old today. Hard to believe. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, this is fun. We got an intimate little group. It kind of feels like the original core team in here. And uh, this is what the core team would be if it was made up of everyone that had four-wheel drive. So thank you guys for owning uh, seasonally appropriate vehicles to get you to church in the weather. I felt like a boss putting my truck in four-wheel drive this morning, kind of <clears throat> justified putting gas in it for the rest of the year uh, just to get here this morning. See, the Lord has need of it. I got to keep, keep my truck, honey. That's what I tell Sarah. Well, I have to say, for the last two years, it's just been such a joy and privilege to get to be a part of this church family, and I feel like as a pastor, I've really gotten to have a front row seat to see this movement of God take shape that, uh, that we call together City Light Church. And I think of everything, the thing that I celebrate the most are the stories. I mean, to listen to, to Foie and Cameron share that story, to listen to Mark and the whole family talk about how Jesus has intersected their lives, to hear Yen's story, uh, so much fun, to, to hear real lives that have been touched by a real Savior named Jesus and have really been changed. And that is the highlight for me is the stories. Thank you guys for sharing those stories. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, so many of you here this morning have stories of how Jesus has intersected your life. So many of you are new Christians, even in the last two years, and we celebrate that. So much fun. And uh, it's exciting for me to think about what are the stories that Jesus is going to write in the next two years. Um, who knows? But we're going to continue to pray uh, that God doesn't let up his grace anytime soon. Now, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if, uh, if you would open them to Luke chapter 7. Verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. This morning I want to preach a sermon called Add a Zero. Add a Zero. And I want to talk to us this morning about how forgiveness in a Christian's life brings about a fruit of love. How the forgiveness of God leads to love poured out in the person who has received the forgiveness. Forgiveness creates a fruit of Love. And I'll start this way this morning as you turn in your Bibles. The very central message of the Bible is called the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came, lived, died, rose again in our place for the forgiveness of our sins and to bring us into a right, unhindered, eternal relationship with God. And the Bible says that God gives us this good news as a gift, and the Bible calls that grace. Meaning that we are undeserving, we are in fact ill-deserving, we are unworthy for God to love us in such a way, but he does so because he's a good God. It's called a present, and the Bible calls this present grace. He gives it freely to those who will receive it by faith. Now here's the thing about grace that makes it so hard to really get our heads around, to grasp, to hang on to uh, in the daily stream of life. And that is this. Grace, by definition, is in every way counterintuitive. It's not the way our brains are wired to think. Because everything in this world has rightly conditioned us to believe in something called conditionality, right? In every other area of life, performance precedes acceptance. Just think about it. Uh, first you achieve, then you receive. Right? First you win the game, and then you get the trophy. If you don't win the game, you don't get the trophy. It's conditional. First you pass the test, then you get the degree. First you do the work, and then you get the paycheck. Never comes in the other order. 
right? First you work out, then you get the abs. That's the way it works. There's a price to be paid. It's conditionality. Outcome is always conditional on performance. This isn't wrong. This is the very fabric of the world that we live in. This is how the world works. This is how every other major world religion works as well, by the way. Karma, nirvana, uh, enlightenment, uh, paradise comes to those who achieve it, who are good enough, who jump through the religious or moral hoops to achieve it. And so everything from religion to academics to competition and sports to business to parenting, you get out what you put in. Good things come to good people. Bad things come to bad people. That's the way the world works. It's conditionality. First you achieve and then you receive. And that's not wrong. That's the way the world works. If you don't reap, you're not going to sow. But Jesus comes with this thing called the gospel. And he flips the entire worldview, the entire lens through which we see the world on its head. In the gospel, Jesus comes and says this. He says, first you receive, and then you achieve. Grace is the idea that with God, you get the trophy before you ever compete, before you ever lift a finger. It's the idea that you receive the love of the Father before you achieve anything because Jesus already competed for you. He already took the test. He achieved perfection for you, and that's why it's called grace. That's why it's called grace. The gospel does not say that good people get good things and bad people get bad things. The gospel says there are no good people, only bad people. And bad people get the the love, grace, and blessings of God if we will just humble ourselves, admit I'm a bad person, and receive it by faith in Jesus. It's called grace. Now, the natural place in our minds to go as we think about grace is this. So if you're saying God's blessing and favor is not contingent upon anything I do. It's not conditional on my moral performance. Uh, Isn't it true then that I could just do whatever I want? Won't grace, rightly lived out, lead to licentiousness and wild worldly living? Don't we need to balance out this idea, Gavin? How can you preach that in the church? Aren't you concerned that everyone's going to start living a little wild? Don't we need to balance out the gospel with with a stern talking to church family that we still need to keep it in line? That's where our mind naturally goes when talking about grace. But what we're going to see this morning in the 15 verses we're going to look at is that grace, rightly perceived and experienced, will bear a fruit of loving obedience, not unloving disobedience. We're going to see the picture of a very sinful, notorious, scandalous woman who meets Jesus, experiences this counterintuitive grace, and her response is not disdainful indifference towards the laws and rules of God, but a heart of loving obedience and worship to Jesus. Uh, When she encounters this amazing grace, uh, we see that she responds in love. Jesus said, he who is forgiven much loves much. Likewise, though, we're also going to see a Pharisee. We're going to see a very religious, self-righteous, proud rule keeper who sees no need for receiving grace in his life whatsoever because he sees no need for forgiveness because he's completely unself-aware of his own sin. And unlike the sinful prostitute, we're going to see this religious man leave the scene with a cold, unworshipful, unrepentant, disobedient heart towards Jesus. 
See, it wasn't that he took grace too literally or received too much, but that he was unwilling to receive it all together. And the key question for us this morning, City Light, that I want us to ask ourselves is which one am I? Which one are you? Whose worship does your worship reflect? That of the Pharisee or that of the prostitute? Whose love does your love reflect? That of the prostitute or that of the Pharisee? Have I really understood my need for grace and received it as I ought? And so let's get right into our verses this morning. Chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And uh, we're just going to walk right through the verses uh, this morning. I'll confess I had the flu this week. I didn't have a ton of time to prep and give energy as I like, so I have no clever outline. There are no three points. We've got 15 verses, and we're just going to talk about it, okay? And we're going to see how the fruit of forgiveness produces, or, or, or that forgiveness in our lives produces a fruit of love in this woman. And so let's go right through it. Verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Uh, real quick, the Pharisees, if you don't know, were a part of the Jewish religious elite class. They were a devout group of, of rule followers who went to great lengths to make sure that they were ceremonially clean, that they observed all the ceremonial, customary, dietary laws of the Old Testament so that they didn't offend God. They loved to argue and debate the finer nuances of theology and scriptural interpretation. And uh, this particular fairy, Pharisee, Uh, We learn later on, interpret that as you like, Uh, we're going to learn later on his name is actually uh, Simon. He's invited Jesus over for a dinner party, it says. And it was customary at the time uh, to invite fellow teachers over to his house. And uh, they would have likely had a a short, a low-to-the-ground table. They would have likely laid on their sides, lounging, eating a meal. They're uh, almost laying on the ground, their feet facing away from the table, and they would eat and they would discuss. Most likely, Simon wants to debate Jesus over some Old Testament Bible verses. He probably also wants to scope out who this new teacher is in town who has created quite the stir. Verse 37, they're eating. It says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he that's Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. It says, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, in this scene, uh, we see that a very unlikely house guest has Um, crashed the dinner party of Simon the Pharisee. Our author, Dr. Luke, uh, gives her a very short description, just says she's a woman of the city, a great sinner. So we don't actually know her name. Uh, In homework this week, I read some commentators speculate that this might be Mary Magdalene, uh, that is formally introduced in the next chapter, chapter 8, though we don't know for sure. Some speculate Luke chose not to give her name so as to not publicly shame him. Or her. It was very likely that she was still alive, still an active member of the church community when Luke wrote this gospel, uh, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that she's a woman of the city and that she was a sinner, uh, i.e., she's probably not the local Sunday school teacher. Okay? Now, we get the idea of who this woman might be. She's most likely not a virgin. Uh, she's most likely a prostitute. 
She's most likely a lady who avails herself to the men of the community. She most likely pays her bills uh, by performing various perverted acts for the men in the city. That's how she gets by. Uh, It's possible, though we don't know, that she's maybe been of service to some men around this religious dinner party, men who often guise their own uh, perverted sin through the veil of religion, common even in our day today, though we don't know. I'm only speculating. But what we do know is that her uh, reputation has negatively preceded her to this dinner party. She's an unwelcome guest. She doesn't fit in this religious circle of all men. Imagine just for a moment what kind of courage it must have taken this young lady in the first century to barge into a religious, theologically debating dinner party in the home of Simon, the local Pharisee. Imagine how scared she must have been when she was considering whether or not she would barge in the door. She had never been in the house of Simon the Pharisee, because that wasn't the kind of place a woman like this would normally go. But that particular night, maybe she watched from afar as she saw this Jesus fellow walk into the Pharisee's house. Maybe, just maybe, this woman has uh, heard some rumors about how Jesus, early on in his ministry, went to bat against the Pharisees and argued with them over issues like um, the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, how Jesus was not afraid or intimidated by these intimidating men, and he stood up for what was right and for what was true. Maybe she heard the rumors of how he had healed the leper, or how he had healed the man with the withered hand, or how just the previous month she had healed the widow's son, rose him from death, the local townspeople say, in just the neighboring town of Nain. Uh, Maybe she heard the rumors about Jesus' teaching uh, that we read in chapter 6, that on the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus had preached to the masses, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And this lady heard rumors of this teaching and how refreshing it seemed to her in such a religious culture of judgment. And here this woman knew that if she could just somehow be with Jesus, even if it meant going into the house of Simon, the local Pharisee, who had maybe even shamed her publicly many times before, that if she could just get in Jesus' presence, everything would be okay and she would be safe. Maybe she knew that uh, there was something about Jesus that if she could just be by his side, everything would be okay. And like the, the leper whose sores were just washed away by Jesus, maybe even her guilt and shame that she carried with her daily could too be washed away by Jesus. Maybe uh, she knew that uh, there was something about him, that if she just got there, it would all be okay. It's very likely this woman didn't consider herself worthy to be in Jesus' presence, but for her it wasn't about her worthiness. It was all about Jesus. If she could just get there, she had a hunch that Jesus, the man, was the answer to all the questions that she had ever asked. City Light, this is a beautiful picture. I love getting to preach this passage because I, I hope that this woman is a picture of our church. That no matter how much guilt we carry, whether we think we've done well or whether we think that we've blown it, we would be a church like this woman who does whatever it takes, risks all and everything, no matter what the cost to us, to just be in the presence of Jesus. Amen? Yeah, 
We don't have to clean up. Even when we blow it, we don't have to wait for our reputation to self-correct through six months of obedience or six years, but we would continually run to Jesus like the prostitute. It says that the woman brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Alabaster was a a translucent, fine-grained stone material. It would have been carved very ornately. It most likely preserved a perfume that was often used only for ceremonial purposes and often for display only. It was so valuable that they didn't actually use it. It might be passed down from generation to generation on display only, but this woman has brought everything she has, and it says that she's standing behind Jesus, and in verse 38, it says that she is weeping. Now, that word for weeping that Dr. Luke, our author, chooses here is significant. That word that he chose to describe her tears is used five other times in the New Testament. Each of the five, it's used to describe a rain shower. Dr. Luke's point is she's not whimpering. I imagine that she's so overwhelmed with a complex set of emotion in this moment that she can't hold it back. She likely is feeling remorse over her sin. She's feeling broken by her sin and her shame. She's weeping over her sin. She's repenting of her sin. And she simultaneously never felt so loved and so accepted in all of her life. Just being at the feet of Jesus, something makes this woman come undone. And her eyes open up like faucets and the tears fall out. Maybe she's embarrassed to be in front of a bunch of stoic men, bawling, not sure what to do. In that moment, she looks through the tears and realizes Jesus' feet have not been washed as they ought. It was customary in this day for a house guest like Simon uh, to have a basin for the guest to wash their feet, or even if he was a man with resources, to have a servant come along and wash a house guest's feet for them. Because Jesus, in traveling to Simon's house, would have traveled roads that are very different than ours. They were dirt. They were often trafficked by livestock and animals. And Jesus is an open-toed sandals. And so he arrives at the house with dirty feet, uh, likely covered in animal feces and mud and dirt. But Simon has not um, taken the courtesy to help wash Jesus' feet. And so here the woman avails her tears to wash the feet of Jesus. It says that she lets down her hair, an act that um, culturally would have been uh, almost promiscuous. It would have been scandalous, though not forbidden in the Old Testament. It was an act of, uh, uh, it would have demonstrated that she was uh, unkempt, that she was easy, that she was scandalous, but she doesn't care because Jesus' feet need dried. And so she risks her own reputation one more time, lets down her long black hair and washes the feet of Jesus. It then says that she takes the alabaster uh, flask of ointment and uh, she washes, she anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume at a very great and expensive cost to her. And then verse 39, it says this. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice he's not talking out loud here, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. <laughs> I love this. Uh, Simon is so disturbed. Uh, you sense the irony here. This beautiful act of worship. This religious guy is concerned, saying, this, this guy's not a prophet, or he would know what kind of woman this is, right? And I love what Jesus does in the next verse. He's going to interrupt his private thought. Remember, Simon is thinking to himself. Imagine how shocked Simon must have been in verse 40. It says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, 
I have something I want to say to you. Imagine the blood pressure. Simon is startled. And he answered, say it, teacher. Essentially, Simon is going to say, or Jesus is going to say, see, Simon, I am, a priv- I am a prophet because I know both her sins and your private thoughts. And I'm going to teach you something, Simon. Hashtag, here it comes. Hashtag, buckle up, religious Simon. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He must have been proud for his right answer. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus is going to use a parable, as he often did, to make sure that we understand in the most simple of terms what is taking place in this scene. He wants to make sure that Simon gets it and that you and I get it. And so he uses a banking analogy. There's, a, in a sense, a, a banker, uh, a money lender, and two dudes owe him some money. Um, one owes him 500 denarii, one owes him 50. Uh, and so a denarii was one day's labor, or one day's wage for a day laborer, so maybe $100 in today's context. Uh, one owes him uh, 50, about two months' worth of wages, the other almost two years' worth of wages. It says that neither could pay the money lender back, and so the banker just says, I'll forgive both of your debts. Then he asks a simple question, which of these two men would love the banker more? Simon answers correctly, I suppose the one for whom he forgave the larger debt. And he's right. The idea that Jesus is trying to communicate is this. Our sins come with a great cost. They come with a cost against a holy God who is a righteous God, and we, throughout the course of our lives, rack up a debt of sin before God. And the debt has to be paid back. The question is, for you and for me, how much sin debt do we owe God? Are we like a 50-level sinner, or are we a 500-level sinner? Uh, Think of it this way. If God had an accounts receivable department, okay, and quarterly he's going to send you a bill for your sins, how much would be on that bill? Would it look like... uh, uh, would it look like you went to UNO on scholarships or like you went to Creighton uh, on student loans? For some of you, that is not hypothetical. You, you get that invoice. That's why I went to a state school. Uh, hallelujah. I already pay the taxes. It's a whole nother sermon right there. But back to the, the, the sin bill. On your sin bill, imagine this, would be every harsh word, it would be every impatient moment, it would be every critical judgment that you've made, it would be every lustful thought that you've had. It would include the things that you have done, exaggerating on your taxes, yelling at your spouse, being impatient with your kids, the website that you visited, the gambling addiction that you've downplayed. It would also include the things that you haven't done that you should have done, the person that you didn't help but should have, the check that you didn't write but felt compelled by God to, the time that you chose to view Facebook instead of uh, spend time in prayer, the time that you went to email, though God told you to go to scripture that morning. And suppose that you open the mailbox and you receive this debt of sin. How much would be on that bill? Would it be a little bit, like a 50-level sinner, or would it be a lot of bit, like a 500-level sinner? That's the question for each one of us. Now, pay attention here. Jesus is not saying that some of us are little sinners that have a little bill and that some of us are big sinners that have a big bill. His point is that everyone is a big sinner 
that has a big debt of sin to pay back God. The problem is some of us just don't realize it. That was the problem with Simon the Pharisee. He thought his bill was short. He didn't think he owed Jesus anything. He didn't see his need for grace. Therefore, his heart is calloused. He doesn't receive forgiveness, and therefore in his heart is no love. The problem is not with his sin. The problem is with his perception of his sin. He didn't realize how much sin he really had. He undervalued his level of sin. He took away a zero from the equation, and he saw no need for grace, and therefore he had no love in his heart. But look with me at verse 44. This is an awesome scene. In this scene, Jesus is going to make the prostitute the teacher and the Pharisee the student. Irony is present in this scene. He's saying, Mr. Pharisee, take some notes on how to be a holy person from this uneducated lady of the night because she is in every way outpacing you. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. See, the 50-level sinner doesn't serve Jesus at all, but the 500-level sinner serves Jesus with everything she has. The Pharisee doesn't see his sin. He doesn't see how much Jesus came to serve him. Therefore, he reciprocates no service to Jesus. He needs to add a zero to his sin equation to see how much Jesus has served him. How about you? Do you need to add a zero to the way you see your sin? Do you realize how much debt You were in debt to God when Jesus came to pay that debt in service to you. The way you'll know is you will be inclined to reciprocate service to Jesus. Are you the kind of person uh, that, that wants to serve Jesus with your free time, your energy, your expertise? Is your posture like the prostitute who comes willing to serve Jesus with everything she has? Or is your posture like the Pharisee? What's the littlest I can do and still be socially acceptable in a religious setting? Do you need to add a zero to the death that you see in your own life and the way that Jesus has served you? Verse 45, it says, You gave me no kiss, Simon, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. The 50-level sinner, Simon, shows zero affection and love, adoration for Jesus. Not glad to see him. The 500-level sinner doesn't stop pouring out love and obvious physical adoration, worship, and appreciation of Jesus. How about you? Do you realize how much Jesus has loved you? That he left the comforts of heaven, that if you were the only sinner on earth in need of saving, that out of love for you, he still would have left the comforts of heaven to come and rescue you. Do you realize how much Jesus loves you? you, that he would come to pay your debt, which was significant. We see from this passage, the way you'll know if, that you have been loved by Jesus is that you'll respond in love and worship to him. Think about your worship life and your adoration for Jesus. Does your worship reflect that of the Pharisee who stands in bored indifference towards Jesus? Or does your worship life reflect the prostitute who falls on her knees? The posture of her heart is reflected in the posture of her body, and she worships Jesus. As we sing together at City Light, do you stand in worship and adoration of Jesus to be in the presence of God? Are you brought to a position of being in awe, or do you stand in kind of bored indifference, just wishing that the music were a different genre, right? 
Do, or do you think about your sin, the debt that God came to pay through his son, Jesus Christ? Does the posture of your heart look like that of the Pharisee or like that of the prostitute? Verse 46, it says, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with anointment, or with ointment. The 50-level sinner is not generous towards Jesus. In fact, he is very cheap. He offers Jesus nothing. But the 500-level sinner, though she is poor, offers Jesus everything she has. See, something happened in this woman's life that Jesus was no longer just a savior to her. He was her very treasure. And through an act of worship, she brought maybe the only thing of value that she owned and put it at the feet of Jesus and poured it out, communicating to Jesus, Jesus, you are my treasure. I would give everything because in you I have found everything for me. You have paid a debt that I could never pay back. Jesus, everything I have is yours. And City Light, I just want to champion some of you in here today. Um, It makes me emotional and worshipful to see the way some of you guys have responded in generosity. In just the last two years, so many of you are brand new Christians Some of you never wrote a tithe check until like two months ago. Uh, We are a church filled with undiscipled, brand new Christians, but you guys are growing and you are giving and you are generous. And it is amazing to see when people uh, turn to Jesus not only as their Savior, but as their treasure. And it's no longer about how do I keep my resources to myself, but how do I avail myself to service and love of Jesus and his church and people in need. That's amazing. And City Lad, I just want to say, Good job. Uh, Some of you guys, that has become a part of your worship, and you are killing it, and I am in awe. But I think it's a a sign of our hearts, and so I want to ask you to evaluate your own heart. Uh, How are you doing? Do you still see resources like the Pharisee as your um, security, something that needs to be clinched onto tightly, or do you, like the prostitute, say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. I'll pour out anything you have given me back at your feet because you are my treasure. You gave your very life to pay a debt that I could never pay back. Jesus, everything I have is yours. Do you need to add a zero to the debt that that you see um, that Jesus has paid for you? Two more sections, and then we'll land this plane. Verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, she is a 500-level sinner, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Let me sum up with what Jesus is saying here. Where there's big forgiveness, there will be big love. Where there's little forgiveness, there will be little love. For Simon the Pharisee, it wasn't that he didn't have big sin. The problem was with perception. He just didn't know it. The guy was clueless. He didn't perceive how deep his sin really went. And so he will never cry out like the Pharisee or like the prostitute in that moment and receive forgiveness. And therefore, he will never experience or show the love that she does. City Light, let me just say there is such a freedom in adding a zero. And just to admit, I am a great sinner. (laughs) To not have to pretend, to not have to compete, to not have to compare anymore. There's a great freedom when you can just say, you know what, I am a 500. Forget that. I'm a 5,000 level sinner. I have nothing to prove. (laughs) I have nothing to perform. I come to Jesus empty-handed, and he is all that I need. 
Here's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't matter how deep our sin goes. His grace goes deeper even still. So we don't have to pretend that we're a 50 when we're really a 500. There's a great freedom in just admitting that. I don't have it together. My confidence is not in myself, but in a great Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, her sins, which are what? Which are many, are forgiven. That is the great news of the gospel. Jesus is not a God who's looking for good people to bless. He's a God who's looking for people who have many sins that he can forgive and use for his kingdom and for his glory. And I want you to know that if you walked into this place uh, this morning thinking, man, this isn't for me. This place is for good people. I'm a screw up. I'm a sinner. Let me say, no, this place is for you. This is Jesus' church, and he welcomes people whom other people would like to keep out. He welcomes in the pervert. He welcomes in the prostitute. He welcomes in um, the other people. He champions the weak, and he forgives the sinner. And City Light, on our second birthday, I just want to say, I want us to be a church full of 500-level sinners. I want you to go sin a whole bunch more. (laughs) I just want you to admit to what's going on really in your heart, that we would be a church liberated by the freedom of the gospel, that we wouldn't um, put ourselves on display, that we would put ourselves at the feet of Jesus, and by experiencing big forgiveness, that we would experience big love like the prostitute in this scene. But the only way we get there is if we will experience that gospel firsthand every day. One more verse, and we'll land the plane. Verse 40, it says, And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, I'll leave you with this, City Light. I think there are some in our church who are spiritually exhausted, spiritually anxious, worn out, about to burn out, from trying hard, doing more, trying to look like you don't need a Savior at all. Can I just preach this word into you. These are Jesus' words. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Jesus isn't expecting you to try hard, to do more, to volunteer more, to serve more, to be better, to do better. If he, would, uh, if he was, he would have been very impressed with the Pharisee in this passage, but he wasn't, was he? His attention is turned where? To the prostitute. Why? Because her faith had saved her. City light, grace comes through Jesus to us through our faith. It's all about resting, trusting in Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, where is your faith? Is it in your performance, your Bible knowledge, your ability to be in the church crowd, in the right crowd, to do things the right religious way? I tried that for a while. It's exhausting. It will kill you. Would you rest in Jesus this morning? Listen, however bad you think you are, the bad news is you're actually worse, (laughs) right? Just add a zero, okay? But here's the good news. Jesus loves even 500-level sinners like you and me, and we can rest in that, and in that faith comes a peace, amen? Amen. For our birthday this morning, we're going to celebrate communion as we've done since the beginning as a church family. And in communion, we remember the body and blood of Christ that was broken and poured out to forgive 500 level sinners like us, City Light. 
In taking the bread and the cup, we remember the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and we proclaim his death until he comes. And so this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him, if you've fallen at his feet like the prostitute, you are welcome to come to the Lord's table. Uh, The communion servers are going to come to the front. They will rip some bread off for you, uh, hand it to you. You dip it in the juice, partake of it that way. Uh, The band will play. We're going to worship like the prostitute this morning, okay? It is our birthday We're not going to stand in passive indifference. I want you to engage your heart with Jesus, the one who came to pay a debt that you could never pay back. Let's pray, and we will celebrate communion. Jesus, this morning we celebrate that you weren't intimidated by religious Pharisees, that you didn't succumb to the pressures um, of the religion of your day, but you boldly proclaimed the freedom that we have in you. You came to pay a debt that we could never pay back. Jesus, would you help us come to terms with the depths of our own sin? Not that we would be like Eeyore and wallow in our sin. Oh, bother. (laughs) I'm just a sinner. Nobody loves me. (laughs) But that we would see the depth from which you have saved us, and we would cry out like the prostitute, you have saved me, that we would pour out our whole lives in worship and love and adoration of you, Jesus. Father, we trust that you are stirring in many hearts in various different ways. Would you serve and minister to each one of us through this time as we remember you through communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.